Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, lsm.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Well, welcome to the Why Life Science podcast through the Bean Museum at BYU, and today we have Dr. Tom Smith on us. Tom, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your expertise and, and maybe how you ended up here at BYU? Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. Well, I started my career, I'll keep it really short, I started at Purdue University and I then ran into a couple of Mormon missionaries, Latter-day Saint missionaries. Found myself in Japan for a couple of years, which was great. Then I came back to BYU um, and finished a bachelor's here. Then I went to the University of Alaska, uh, received a master's. Then I was headed for Arizona, northern Arizona to do bighorn sheep. And my former professor here, uh, Jaron Flinders, said, oh, you really ought to work here. And he had a gold-plated study. I mean, it had everything. So I took, I came back. Not that BYU is not a great place, but um, I came back and did my doctorate here. Was hired on with the National Park Service as a research biologist um, in Alaska because I had a lot of time in Alaska. I uh, commercial fished for a decade up there and did my research there on caribou. So I went back and, and studied exclusively bears. So I worked on, I, well, I say exclusive, but I mean, I, I also had gained a lot of skills on plant associations, habitats and things. That's a real strength here at BYU. The program teaches range and wildlife. And so our students are, are just outstanding because a lot of people don't like plants, but since they dictate everything about where wildlife <laughs> is, and people go, well, bears aren't eating them. Yeah, bears do eat them. Um, but even then, wolves have to feed on elk, which are feeding on plants. So right. you can't get very far from plants. And if you know them, that's great. So I did 14 years in Alaska working on polar black and browns. And then I had an unparalleled uh, opportunity, unprecedented opportunity to come back here and teach which coincided, I love my job, but it coincided with kind of a disintegration of the group I was in, which was a, a, a force beyond any local thing. It was the federal government reorganization. And it's, it's boring. But it was advantageous to jump ship. I mean, the ship was taking a lot of water. So it's like, okay, good, <laughs> I'm over the rail. And so BYU was there with a little lifeboat, and I jumped in. And so I've been here for 16 years since. And what were your degrees in both undergrad and graduate? Uh, all wildlife science. I started at Purdue in forestry and then came to learn, like our students here, that's, they're just, you know, doing agriculture with trees instead of corn. So that wasn't really, I'm grateful people do that, but that wasn't my thing. So my degrees were in all in wildlife um, related sort of things. And um, I have a question about yeah. your upbringing. What interested you about wildlife when you were little? I think, you know, it's kind of touching close to home here. I had basically no parents, so um, we raised ourselves. There were six kids we raised ourselves. Because how's that possible? Well, we had them, but without going further, they were uh, addicted to alcohol, so they really couldn't take care of themselves. Gotcha. For us, it was woohoo. We had, I mean, <laughs> to go, rain. how terrible. I said, no, no, how wonderful. <laughs> I, we had no 
no curfew. We had no anything. The uh, cage-free Smiths. It was the cage-free, yeah, free-range Smiths. And uh, there was a saying in the town I grew up, if the Smith boys are going to play at your house, make sure your health insurance is paid <laughs> up and your home insurance. So we were labeled as bad as good kids could be. But we had wonderful growing up, and we spent all of our time. Uh, in, in fact, that's interesting. I've been married almost 40 years now. And my wife, the other day, we were talking about this. And she goes, well, what time did your your mother have you come in? I said, what are you talking about? There wasn't anybody. We just came in when we got tired, and we got mm-hmm. up when we were ready to get up. There was nobody there. So the plus side was that we just explored every wild nook and cranny and built canoes and rafts. I remember one time we floated a river in a, in a uh, an old refrigerator. <laughs> I mean, you know, don't life vest, no such thing. So, I mean, you and where know, did you grow up? In Indiana, okay. which is a spectacular place. I mean, people go, oh, it's the Midwest. You should see the biodiversity there. It's mm. off the charts. You can't sleep at night. It's just layer upon layer of symphonies of crickets and tree frogs and insects, cicada. I mean, it's just, it just throbs and hums. It's just a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, flying squirrels and fireflies and just all the magical elements that a kid wants. So I had a great time. I'm not trying to say having no parents is a good thing. I was like little Mowgli in Jungle Book, you know. (laughs) We were just running around doing whatever we wanted, but we didn't know any different. We just consider parents these people that stayed out of our way. (laughs) So, there, you know, and I told my wife once, we basically raised ourselves, and she kind of put her chin in her hand and said, not that great a job, you know, but I said, you know, give a six-year-old a break. Come on. But anyway, so that was kind of my, my childhood. And uh, so we bonded with nature, which was really important. I know there's studies out now that show that if children miss that, and I think the Bean Museum knows that better than anybody, if your children don't bond with nature, they grow up feeling they're somehow aloof and apart. They don't respect it as much. They don't value it as much. And it's a real problem today for many of our children. And so I I guess I'm pretty blessed. You know how it is. There's always a silver lining on this stuff. So that was my silver lining. And what was your, I guess, path to higher education? Did all your siblings go to college as well, or was that difficult? (laughs) Well, I was, you know, I came off my mission, and the funny story there is I was going to go back to Purdue, and some some of my friends now who are LDS said, no, you've got to go to BYU. And I said, what's the selling point there? And they said, well, it's the land of milk and honeys. (laughs) plural and I did meet my wife here so that was a benefit but I didn't feel I was cut out my parents had never really used their college educations they both had them yet I felt like I wanted to kind of do something with my intellect and that was best served through getting an education at a university and then of course the beautiful thing here is you have these kids there's very very few that come in and go yes I'm going to be a you know, a doctor or a lawyer, or a dentist or whatever, but they sort that out. You know, you'll see it. They change majors and change majors, and that's very common. And so I, I wanted that, and I got that, so I was very happy. You know, I, I didn't change a lot, but I, I was pre-med. Uh, my first uh, degree was in pre-med, and um, I actually got accepted to medical school, and then I had to sit back and really think about that. Do I really want to do that? And the answer was no, I really don't want to do that. I really enjoy outdoors more than medicine. Some grateful people do medicine, obviously, but I'm glad I wasn't one of them. <laughs> you know, anyway. Yeah. 
So now you work with wildlife. I do. What is the emphasis of your research? You know, it's now? interesting. What I found is that, you know, with bears, which is just, not to minimize bears, but we teach our students here the skill set to work with anything from salamanders to bears or whatever in between. And so uh, for me, it was bears. The same skill set I use could be used on a number of organisms. So our students are pretty flexible. Bears are kind of interesting. As they say, um, if it doesn't kill you, it will make you stronger or something, but bears will kill you. (laughs) And so there's always this sort of uh, primordial fear that we have for predators. That's been well established that even people who have never had exposure to them, you know, studies have been done with apes where chimps, where they show chimps raised in a, uh, a completely unnatural setting like a zoo can be presented snakes and they immediately freak out and they have a different call for poisonous and non-poisonous even if they haven't had experience. I think bears are that way for us. Our evolutionary history, we had to be sensitive to everything in the environment because that would see you through to the next day, right? Survival value. Well, things that can eat you have to be paid attention to as well. So I think it's deep, deep, deep in our uh, psyche, these animals. Point of story is, uh, so people are flocking to me. I mean, I studied mountain sheep for my (laughs) doctorate, and they go, well, how do we behave around bears? It's like, I don't know any more than you, which wasn't a very good answer. So I had to spend a lot of time in study. So I studied all the good books out there, and then I started disseminating the information, and people said, fine, you know, it it wasn't hard. That's one thing you learn at a university is how to learn. So I think our students are really good students. They know how to come up to speed really quick. But all of a sudden, partway through this, I started going, that doesn't make sense, you know, because I was working with grizzly bears. I'm going, they don't, why would somebody tell you to like raise your hands over your head and look big? That's out there. Speak softly to them or even better is I see it in professional publications. Speak respectfully to the bear. Like, what the heck is that? What does that mean? To a black bear, what black is a very slimming color on you. (laughs) I mean, it looks good on you. I mean, what's that even mean? And where's that coming from? Another one you may have heard is don't look them directly in the eye. I mean, this is silly nonsense. So all of a sudden I started going, okay, let's just get to the bottom of this. So I was really blessed to be able to say to the government, I'm going to just go after these things. So I've had a real fun life as a naturalist just doing what I want now working for a federal agency I was also given mandates like you know in Katmai we have a lot of people doing flying fishing the bears are out there and they're a little concerned because they get notes from the public hey this can't be right you know a plane's landing on top of grizzly bears and I've seen it I mean the bears just look up with a fish like a piece of watermelon in their mouth and the float on the float plane just about cut parts of their hair Mm. and they don't even look at them uh, more than that but they wanted us to investigate is this good or bad so i've done a lot of studies of things human bear interactions at all kinds of levels and snuck in all my favored kind of research on the side so you're doing this study here we can run trials out here so i've run thousands of trials of bears what a naive bears do when they're presented with certain sights scents and sounds in their environment how do they respond to that how do they think why do they think that way and so i've been able to kind of pursue those kinds of questions in my career it's been really fun. 
So we recently had two capstone projects here on campus, which got a little bit of press. They were on the local internal, you know, BYU webpage and stuff. Well, I guess it's not internal. It goes out. But my problems became engineering problems. So I enlisted the help of the engineers here in the uh, College of Engineering. And uh, that was wonderful. So we did a lot of studies. We were trying to find new ways of finding polar bear dens, which they den in the snow, blows over. How do you know where they are? Who cares might be the first answer, but the oil industry cares because they can't go out there and do all their seismic testing in the wintertime, which is when they do it, and just run over bear dens. I mean, that's not okay. First of all, the people in the oil business are good people. They really don't want to hurt bears. Right. Um, But they also have a job of mapping the strata down a couple miles, and they do that with these seismic thumpers. And so my job was, okay, number one, where are the bears? Well... So we did everything from finding them with dogs, finding them with uh, aerial surveys, uh, using infrared cameras, all of which have their limitations, lots of limitations. Now we're using synthetic aperture radar, big term SAR, which is radar that can see through snow. This is though the snow weren't, weren't there. Dr. David Long in the engineering college is an expert in that. And just as a side note, I was listening to Science Friday on uh, NPR, and they were talking about how they were trying to find Genghis Khan's tomb in the forests of Mongolia. And they're flying over with uh, LIDAR and, fl- and SAR because it could see through the, the canopy and they could, they could identify rock structures that you couldn't oh, wow. find. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And then, then they went on to this guy that's a glaciologist at Washington State, and they could map because they can see through the glaciers, they can map the bottom of the, the valleys. And I thought, well, if you could do that. So I called the glaciologist up, just called him, but I said I was a bear biologist, and would that work? And I was thinking about using SAR, and he goes, well, you know the SAR expert of the world is at this uh, university. I must not have told him, because he says, is it Brigham Young University? <laughs> I said, Oh, that would be about 100 yards from my office. <laughs> Talk to you later. And I hung up and I went over and saw David Long. We got several grants, and so we've been testing that. And then we also, uh, maybe you saw um, in recent news where sensational headlines, I mean, the media loves this. You got it. I mean, I'll hand it to them. It's pretty good. You've got 54 polar bears laying siege to a Russian Arctic village, and it's kind of the cowboys and indians thing with them circling around you know and and all that sort of thing and they were terrorizing the village and two things one is i did write a paper about why that's happening that was in the journal oryx last month and we got a pretty good bit of press on that one but it talked about why is this going on and then also how do you defend yourself because they look at houses as just vending machines, basically. They mm. go up, and if it doesn't give them food, they rip the door off and go in. So they get dumped with the garbage dump is what the problem is. They dump their garbage out in an open landfill. So we repurposed automotive radar, which is very cheap, like 50 bucks a unit, to where it talks to your smartphone. It'll send a message whenever anything out to 100 meters is detected moving, and it will send you a live image, and it will track it from a Google Earth perspective, where that animal is and where it's going. So we felt like, you know, our goal was to create an effective 
and low cost alternative. The only thing on the market was like thirty thousand per unit. Ours came in at about five hundred, and so uh, weren't looking to make money as much as get those in villages so people would have a heads up, uh, a bit of warning because these human bear conflicts are really bad for bears and they're really bad for people. Not to take sides, it's just bad. Um, it really rolls our conservation efforts back when people, you know, have had bad interactions with bears. Um, another study I'm on is in uh, several studies in India with uh, bears there. And it's very hard to convince villagers that these are important parts of the ecosystem if it killed their father or their brother. Right. They don't want them. So, so they you, don't want to protect them. They want to protect themselves. Yeah. And you can't blame them. But we're trying to educate them on how to co. You, you wouldn't think. Here, these people live in India, and here I live in Provo, Utah. And what am I doing telling them? Well, you know, I've studied bears a lot longer than they have, and I pay attention to bears. And I think that's part of the thing. I mean, most people go, oh, you're the bear expert. And I, I will always correct them and say, compared to you, I am. <laughs> but, I mean, because I know more than you, but I feel like I'm still very rudimentary information on these animals' knowledge. But back to sloth bears, they don't eat meat. So they're not killing people ever for food, ever. It's always defensive. So then that means we have to educate these people. How do you not trigger a behavior that's co-evolved so that they can live with, with tigers? That's the problem. And so it's been a fun career. I mean, engaging. And when I say fun, it's just always good. to You know, I like going to work and taking on these challenges. So I, I actually, though, it's funny. I once went to church in Alaska and this branch president there asked me so what do you do <laughs> I said well I study bears and this guy was totally unfiltered I mean I had no ill will he goes well what good is that <laughs> and so I, I I upped him when he didn't know me I said well I'm a federal researcher so the good news is you're paying my wages so thank you <laughs> he goes, and I said if you really want to know what good it is let's talk so we had a good visit about it why it was useful but that's always the job of the scientist right trying to convince people that what you're doing has any value whatsoever well that's a good question like why do you do it what's the importance to you you know one thing I've noticed is every animal on the planet needs a needs a, a proponent somebody that's going to champion it and it's a little hard to come up with the champion of the nudibranch, you know, this little slimy <laughs> thing in the ocean. If if they had made little beanie babies out of them and thrown them into cribs, maybe people would like them. They are pretty. They're really colorful. <laughs> but I can say there is a, a champion for the lion and for the bear and for the snake, certain snakes. I mean, there's Jane Goodall. Everybody knows she's chimp person and and so forth. And so when you get the freedom to specialize like that, then at least I can make a difference for this species, which is in trouble. And part of that means that we have to go many angles. One is education, the public, bear safety stuff. You know, I've made a couple bear videos. We've got one out that's, I like it, super cool. It's in Hindi, which is kind of a problem. There's a, an English version on YouTube, living with sloth bears. It's, it's really short. It's only 10, 12 minutes. But it's well done. So I'm doing that kind of stuff. Then we also are looking at deterrence, the effectiveness, messaging its effectiveness, the habitats that they need to survive. And so it's it's been a really, uh, like I say, engaging career because I can always look at different angles of it um, and be doing something with the ultimate goal of conserving bears and making it safer for people. And I teach a class on carnivores, you know, bears, wolves, cats 
weasels, raccoons, everything down to sea lions. You know, there's marine mammals that are carnivores. And we look at the role that carnivores play in our world today, and most people are very unaware how just critical they are. They're not just lovely little creatures that are out there. Um, They do very important ecosystem services that we all benefit from. One of the newest insights about carnivores is there's a thing called top-down forcing, which is they don't just like ride at the pinnacle of a food pyramid. They actually influence all the way down to the producers. You remove those things and things shift, usually not in good ways. Um, And so educating the public on that has been a task. But for instance, people ask me, well, you surely want wolves back in Utah because I work with wolves occasionally. And I say, no, I mean, think about it. Would you take your dog, you, you have a family dog and and to say, you know, spot, run free and dump him off in the middle of L.A. He's going to get hit by a car or bite somebody or something. It's not going to be good. Utah is so uh, altered, the landscape, that I think we've passed the point where an animal like a wolf with a large home range or a grizzly bear with a very large home range could live here anymore and not do things that are going to turn the public sentiment against it because they can't help but get into trouble right? So we don't wish that on those animals. It's a sort of a sadness, but I think we're way past it. I see. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you could dump them in the UNS, but they're going to come out and cause trouble, not because they want to cause trouble, just because they're not stupid. Um, If you make them an offer they can't refuse, they don't. So they'd rather eat your garbage or your, you know, let's take bears around here. They'd rather eat Think of a normal house. People go, well, there's nothing. Oh, yeah, there is. There's a lot of times pet food outside. There's bird seed outside. Bears go for that. There's a barbecue grill loaded with grease. They go for that. Compost piles, they love that. Uh, You start thinking about there's every reason not to stay in the wilderness. That's what I'd do if I had a little bear suit on zippered bear outfit i'd come down here and i i live the good life you know the problem is is they eat the dog food then they go to the end of the leash and eat the dog so people like them as long as they do what they want and they don't do what we want so i wouldn't want grizzly bears here they're a problem black bears fortunately are forest dwellers most of our housing here isn't in the forest they don't come down here but they're here we've had byu students have some very scary bear incidents just up Rock Canyon and up on Y Mountain. And I mean, right here, bears are not 300 pound chipmunks. Um, They are potentially dangerous animals and you need to have respect and let them, you know, stay their distance and don't attract them into your camps and uh, be bear aware. Even in, you know, in Utah, there's maybe three or 4,000 here. And, and somebody said, well, they don't attack. I said, they don't until they do. And uh, one of my, favorite axioms is um, I don't let big, hairy, four-legged creatures make significant decisions for my life. So I don't put myself in a position where bears can make those decisions, which they will. We do have an interesting project the students help me on. We have a database for North America of not all, but a, uh, over a couple thousand bear attacks in different skirmishes. And you that'll go live here pretty soon. BYU is going to web, uh, what do you call it, host it or whatever. Oh, okay. And you can anybody can go on and, and look at what's going on, where, yeah. what has happened. It has over half a million data points in it. So it's a lot of work. Um, and it's confusing. I mean, there's kind of an axiom people live by. 
which is if a story's not worth embellishing, it's not worth telling. So uh. when you get bear tales, you have to kind of have a bit of a degree of skepticism. But the facts that we feel really certain about are when people are injured, that's pretty straightforward. Species is straightforward. Where it happened, why it happened, a lot of times we, do, we can't extract that. So I think that's another tool to help people be safer in bear country if they want to browse it and look at it and that kind of thing. So you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of misconceptions of, of mm. how to stay safe. What are some things to do if you do encounter a bear? Well, I, I, let me debunk one first. The look big sounds good, right? You see it on Jurassic Park. Look big. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't do any good with T-Rex, but those little velociraptors, I guess that's what they think it's. The thing is with bears, after you study them long enough, you realize a couple things. But one is, do bears do that? Do they show size? In a sudden or surprise encounter, they never do. They just flat out attack. Size doesn't matter. And if you want to watch film, watch a 400-pound female drive off a 1,000-pound male. They drive them off really efficiently. It's that explosive burst of aggressiveness that drives them off. That's been selected for over time. So when a human triggers that, it's really a problem. The last thing you want to be doing is standing there going, hey, bear, something like that. Clearly, you would want to get your deterrent. So let's go back to this. Um, talking to the bear, that's nonsense. There's no, nothing to support that. Um, what do you do? Number one thing I tell everybody, which you won't see in any bear books, is that you never go in bear country without a deterrent. Just don't mm. do it. So that means you have, for most of us, a can of bear spray. I published maybe six papers on bear spray. It's uh, 99% effective. People go, well, it's not perfect. 99%? Give right. me a break. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, fire, I did one on firearms. Well, guns, some people want to use guns, but that paper showed it. They were about 76% effective. Well, that's pretty good, except for the 24%, which included 17 fatalities, 35 severe maulings, and all the way down to 126 people out of my sample size. Um, guns are difficult to use um, accurately by most people, let alone when it's charging bear. So it's very difficult. Can they stop a bear? They've saved many people's lives. But... Can the average person use them effectively? That's pretty questionable. So, number one, you have to have a deterrent for most people. It's bear spray. Number two, very simple thing is you want to telegraph your presence. Not all the time. I, I mean, I was in Alaska once. There's a huge meadow I'm up on a hill doing bear research, and some hikers are coming along, and they're singing opera. I was going to shoot them. It was like... <laughs> It was like, okay, you've got two enemies now, the bear and me. So shut up. I'm out here to enjoy nature. So we want to go with the flow of nature. But when you're in a park like Yellowstone and you're hiking, let's say I'm in a big meadow. I don't even make a noise. Just go with the flow. I can see what's out there. Yeah. But I start approaching the wooded areas. Then we'll raise our conversation between us a little bit. And if you want, you can clap your hands loudly. Just you want to let them know something is coming. But also, I don't have any data where two or more people have been attacked in North America. Not Why? They're risk evaluators. They see one-on-one, -on -one, good, I'll take you on. One-on-two, -on -two, they won't do it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So people will say, oh, no, no, I know this incident in Alaska where four or five boys on a Knowles trip got attacked. They did. Well, and I said, yeah, they all ran like scared chickens. And when the bear came out, it took them out. One here, one over there, one over there, and one over there. Had they just stayed together, that bear would not have touched them. Mm. I'm convinced. So hiking with two or more is a valuable, very easy thing to do. 
in a group, you know, Boy Scouts, uh, they go, well, I know a Boy Scout troop was attacked. Yeah, the lead kid was running down the trail, and the next kid was 100 yards behind him. That's th- a group of 30 single people. So to the bear, it's one person, you know, so think like a bear. They say, how close do you have to be? Close enough to talk. If you can talk, you're close enough. That's a group. So always have a deterrent. Let bears know you're there. Hike as a group. Uh, That's the simplest stuff. And then there's a whole nother suite. Let's say you encounter bear. um, Contrary to what Alaska says, and I'll take them on any day. I lived there many, many years. They say, stand your ground. First thing, stand your ground. Do not stand your ground. I say to my groups, there's a bear up ahead, get your bear spray out, let's group up and keep moving. Why? Because I've seen it too many times. If you stop and I go, hey, bear, something like that, and it's a mom with two cubs, all she wants is you out of their space. She sees you as a threat. So standing there doing that, that's just goading her into a charge. A lot of the time, you have no way of telling if that's a mom with cubs because the cubs are either sleeping back behind her, they're up a tree, or they're somewhere else. So you will not know. That's number one. Number two is if bears are on a carcass, there is nothing in the world that says they're going to tolerate it because anything closing in is there to take the carcass away. Doesn't matter if it's a skinny little human that wouldn't eat that much meat in a five years they don't know all they know is it's a it's a challenge to their possession and they will run you off and if you're not another bear that can hightail it they'll just take you out so you keep moving and get out of there because you can't see the carcass you just don't know um people say well what if it follows then ready your deterrence if it closes within 25 feet spray the animal and keep going so i think that's pretty simple anyway yeah thank you that's helpful it's pretty simple stuff. But here in Utah, people are very bear unaware. Also, just a simple fact, I have three daughters, and I gave them a can of bear spray for Christmas. Well, what are we going to do with this? They said, well, number one, set it by your nightstand. Anybody comes through the window, they're not going to do that twice. <laughs> people would very rapidly deploy bear spray because it's not lethal. We have many, many people with guns that will not ultimately shoot a human, even when they're being threatened. Because it's lethal, you can't call the bullets back. Bear spray, not so much. You can spray your uncle with it. You know, I mean, <laughs> if somebody dares come down, and there have been people coming down the hall, they shoot them, and it turns out some family member, you know, they freaked right. out. It's not common, but but I'm just saying. I it's think safer than firearms. It, oh, I think for most people it is. And you spray them, believe me, they got a new set of problems, not how to find your jewelry. They want to get the heck out of there. Right. Have so, you been sprayed with bear spray? Oh, I've, oh, I've been sprayed, yeah, plenty. <laughs> well, we've published a paper. The northern communities tend to be a little reluctant to embrace it. Not to victim blame, but I've seen several fatal maulings in the last five years. All of them could have, in my opinion, very easily been stopped with one can of bear spray for 30 bucks. Instead, they had nothing. We just published a paper where it's 98% effective on polar bears. The wind will render it useless. We did a lot of tests here with engineering. We Really cool stuff um, where we modeled the plumes and air, wind, you know, blah, blah, blah. Even with a very strong headwind, you can still paint a bear me to you, three meters, two meters. No problem. It's not what you'd like, but it's still going to come out of there at 75 miles an hour. The third thing was that temperature would make the cans so they won't work. Uh, we had cans down to 40 below. They still hurl it out there. Um, ultimately, just keep it inside your jacket or sleep with it in your tent under your sleeping pad so it doesn't get totally frozen. So we try to debunk all those reasons why people don't carry it. Well, you mentioned that sometimes these human-bear interactions or conflicts 
is bad for the bears yeah. and it's bad for the humans mm-hmm. and it hurts the conservation effort. It, it I does. guess what can people do to I guess help with the conservation efforts and maybe decrease these these encounters or conflicts with well, bears. Well, don't set bears up to fail, number one. I mean, you go into bear country, recognize you're introducing sights, scents, and sounds that they pay attention to. There's an old saying, you know, a friend of mine that's a tracker, he says, if somebody moves something in your house, you notice it. If somebody moves something in the outdoors, I notice it. And bears are like him. They notice it. That's how they make a living. Um, they have their routines, but they pay attention to novelty, novel scents, novel sights, novel sounds. So let's not inordinately attract bears to ourselves. Also be ready for a bear encounter with these kind of simple things that I laid out. Elsewise, you end up with what we had last year, two years ago, at Eagle River, Alaska, a jogger was attacked and killed. What happened? They came in fishing game, came in and shot nine different bears. Uh, we wow. think we got it. Then another guy got attacked and killed down by uh, Hope, Alaska. They shot like 10 bears there. The, those retaliatory killings, it's not that fishing game's not trying to do a good job, but the public demands, you know, that this area be ridded. So there, therein lies the two problems. So don't set bears up to fail. That's the number one thing, and you can do that through your own behavior. I had a person one time said, I refuse to carry, you know, a bear canister. I mean, you don't have to carry a bear can to go camping in bear country. You can also hang your food. And this one individual kept kind of pestering, well, I'm not going to carry the bear can. I said, well, then a lot of Alaska here in Utah, too, if you have a uh, glacial erratic, like up in the U.N. as big granite boulders, just chuck your food on top with a tagline. You can just kind of lob it up there, and the little lines hanging down, and the bear can't get up the boulder, and you've got pull it off that way. That's one way, or hang it in a tree. You know, there's ways to do this, and this person said, well, I'm not going to do any of that. So what, what would you recommend? It's, I said, you know... What you're saying to me is basically the same thing as I refuse to wear a seatbelt. So tell me, what's the best way to be ejected through the windshield? I mean, (laughs) come on, give me a break here. You've had this lecture. Don't do that. I said, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you may go, well, I can just go home. When I get free time to go in the wilderness, that's special. I'm not having a bear tell me when I'm going home. But if it takes my food, now that's going to be. So some creature said, oh, vacationer, it's over. You have no food. Get out of my wilderness. <laughs> you know, so they're not going to tell me that. Number two, the thing people don't appreciate, bears are extraordinarily sensitive to smell. We're doing tests at the Hogel right now with polars and black, browns, grizzlies, and then out in the wild here with blacks. We're using, we have 75 different scents we're trying. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Very difficult research. But my point being, when we touch something, like I touched this cell phone here, it's got human scent doped all over it. You and I don't appreciate that. Like I can't close my eyes and go, yeah, Katie's in the room. Right. At least you hope I can't. So, <laughs> yeah, Austin's here. We smell him. <laughs> Humans can't. Bears can. So what happens is if this is a chocolate bar and I lay it out there, it's as though, let's say we had a strong peppermint scent or something you would not miss. And every time you smell peppermint, you get that chocolate bar guess what? The next time they come into a campsite, they smell the human scent. It's the same thing. They start ripping tents open looking for the, for the food. Mm. So that's the problem there. And so, um, 
you know, we have to be very careful with food in bear country. And that's what I said to this individual. I said, so you don't care about your vacation. You don't even care about yourself. But what you've done now is you set a bear up that now has made that association. Some other person's going to pay for your indiscretions. The bear's going to get shot. They may get injured. So if you can't care about yourself, at least worry about them, you know. So that's my way of looking at it anyway. Well, thanks. And, and, and I think you touched on the importance of the conservation because of how yeah. it plays into this whole food chain and, and the, the ecosystem. I mean, just because they're it's all connected, just because they're the apex predator doesn't mean that they just ride the top, but they're, they're really interacting yeah. with everything. They are. And one short little aside, you know, that was played out with sea otters. People, because the fur, you know, they, they killed them all off. Well, that's sad. People, oh, we'll miss them. All of a sudden, commercial fisheries worth tens of millions collapsed. What? Well, why? Because the otters were no longer killing off uh, eating the urchins, which then ate all the kelp, which then destroyed all the birthing ha- uh, habitat or the nursery habitat for the small fish. The predators ate all them. Boom, no more commercial fish. So even though we don't see the multiple links, you can almost bet, it's like the old spider web analogy, you touch one strand, you wiggle the whole thing. It's almost always not to our advantage to be doing this. And I think Aldo Leopold put it best. He says the first sign of intelligent tinkering is to keep all the parts. You know, you take apart a watch, you don't assemble it and then throw the pieces away. You couldn't figure out where they went. So that was wisdom. And I think that's the message is we may not appreciate even now all that bears do, but we're way better off with them than without them. We're going to pay a price. Well, being here at BYU, we also have the, I guess, unique perspective of, of the religious side of, of conservation and, and, the earth that God has provided for us, what kind of role does, I guess, your faith play in, in the research that you do and how that all plays out? Well, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of former professor Paul Cox. He was in our department, and he put it this way. He says, when Jesus comes back and he goes to St. George and says, where's the desert tortoise that I, I'm trying to think how he said it, I put here, He called Cox said, we may not be so quick to say we needed another nine holes of golf. Um, his point being is that we're stewards and stewards aren't ultimately the owners of the masters. They're just given trust. And I think my LDS training, my belief is God's given us this beautiful planet, but he didn't say we had godly power to destroy or to eliminate species willy nilly. You know, I think a beautiful thing about our religious view is God, God isn't a person of being that just hand hovers over the smite button just to get you when you cross some line. We do it to ourselves, and that's payment enough. So when you screw up an ecosystem, guess what? God didn't have to push any buttons. You pushed them, and you're going to pay for that. So I think that my religious education pays off that way because I realize everything is connected. I am not in a position of ultimate decision-making. As a steward, I need to keep the garden fruitful, and that's what I'll be judged. And it goes way back to the Ten Talents and all the different parables in the Bible. Every one of those is saying, you know, be a good husbandman or woman, take care of it, make it fruitful, and multiply. It never says, oh, I'm going to give you the keys to the car. You can just drive it off a cliff. And that's the exciting thing about doing bears. People go, what good spares? Well, the bigger image is this this isn't about bears. It's about humans and this world and how we see our roles and how we interact with this world, be it bears or fish or flowers or whatever. That's a lesson that everybody needs to take, and I think that's what God would have us do.
Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, my insight. pleasure. And thanks for joining us today. I, I know it's hard to get stuff out of me, you know. <laughs> kind of got to poke that pole. Poke the bear. Poke the bear. <laughs> <laughs> poke the bear. Thank you for coming. You're welcome, Katie Austin.